Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20. The 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. This early epistle is written to encourage these believers and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Paul began this letter by giving thanks to God for them. And then Paul commended the wonderful example that these believers had set for others to follow as they excelled in faith, hope, and love, as they passionately shared the good news of Christ with the many lost souls around them, and then as they turned away from idols and served the Lord from the heart based on their intense love for Him. Here in chapter 2, Paul's been defending himself, his ministry, and his motives. And he basically shut down the haters with the truth of God. And last time, uh, he wrote about the seriousness of the unsaved Jews in particular, but this applies to every unsaved person, who oppose both God and God's people. And today, Paul shares a bit of his heart with them. Let's look at that, verse 17. But we, brethren having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. Now here in today's passage, we can note, Four truths from Paul as he thinks about the Thessalonians. First, he says this, we hope to see you, verse 17. Now, note that this isn't just some empty words by Paul here, not at all. This is Paul's true feelings that express the warmth of his heart and the depth of his love for these believers. Now, remember, Paul was ministering alone in the city of Corinth when he wrote these words, and even though the last time he was in Thessalonica was very dangerous and quite unpleasant as he was driven out of the city, even so, he earnestly longed to be with these Christians. And I believe that this is how we should feel about one another as the family of God. See, Paul clearly sees the church as a family, as a community that is knit together by love, and not just any kind of love, but agape love, a godly love, covenant love that comes from God to His children specifically, which is a unique love for Christians only. Note how Paul calls these Christians brethren. He says, but we brethren, and that's who we are as Christians. We are brethren. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And may I add, whether you like it or not. The word brethren literally means those who are born from the same womb. And it describes our common identity that we have as fellow Christians. We are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the same heavenly Father and He unites us intimately together. And that is an absolutely amazing truth. Look, because Christ, God the Son, left heaven, came here, 
took on human flesh, 100% God and 100% man at the same time, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in the believer's place, taking all of our sin upon himself and paying the full wages of all that sin in our place on that cross. And then he died a brutal death on that cross so that we who believe wouldn't have to pay sin's wages in hell forever. And then he rose up from the dead three days later because he did all that for us. And because we have surrendered to Him in true, saving, repentant faith, look, because of all that, and because we've believed on Him for true salvation and and eternal life, we are now God's beloved children. We are brothers and we are sisters in Christ. We are part, as believers, of God's eternal family. Brethren. That's us. That's who we are. Look, every earthly family is messed up. Anybody? Because we're all sinners, right? But good news, in Christ, God says, I'm your father now. (laughs) And I am good. And I love you more than you could ever think or imagine. And I will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. And I will never truly let you down. And I will only and always do what's best for your eternal soul. You are mine. I chose you. I adopted you. I wanted you. I made you my own. And I will keep you as mine forever. And that's true for every Christian. And that's why Paul can call all Christians brethren. And that's why we can call each other brothers and sisters because we are. We are. So Paul says brethren, family, We were taken away from you. The word for taken away is a Greek word, apoorphanizo, from which we get the word orphan. And it describes an unwanted separation, being torn away from, being deprived of contact from. And that describes how Paul is feeling at this moment that he writes these words. Orphaned. Torn away from his family. Deprived of his loved ones in Thessalonica. See, to Paul... The church isn't a business, (laughs) but the church is a family that's knitted together in godly love, and Paul misses his church family in Thessalonica. Clearly, he loved them. Clearly, he missed them. Clearly, he greatly desired to see them again face to face. Now, some believe that here Paul might be defending himself from charges that he had abandoned the Thessalonians and that once they were out of his sight, then they were then out of his mind. But that was the farthest thing from the truth. So he says, hey, we were torn away. Remember that from Acts chapter 17? A mob formed, an attack against Christians ensued, targeting Paul and his friends who weren't around, but then they were driven from the city at night. We were torn away, he says, but not in heart. See, they, the, the forced separation was only geographical, not spiritual and not emotional because they had always remained close to Paul's heart. You understand what he's saying, right? Your, your child goes off to school or she moves down to Southern California. I hate Southern California. <laughs> Why you don't see her face to face? She's in your heart, right? She's in your thoughts, your prayers, and she's just constantly on your mind. Now that's how Paul felt toward these Thessalonian believers as he separated from them. 
He adds, I endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. And you can just hear Paul's heart in these words. I've tried to come and see you. I've, I've endeavored, literally, I've given my best effort to see you. I've been zealous and, and diligent to come and see you face to face. I've done everything I can to, to come to you because it's my earnest desire. It's my craving, my, my passion to see you face to face. But I haven't been able to come. Clearly, Paul loved them and felt for them and agonized over them. And he's a great example for pastors and deacons and leaders and members of every church and in every age. You feel that way? Again, we're family. We have the same Father. We'll be with each other forever in eternal glory. We have the same aim We're forgiven of all our sin. We should love one another and we should deeply care for one another. And it should show in how we treat each other. One said, Paul's life was bound up in the welfare of those that he served. And that's right. And as brethren in Christ, our lives are bound up together as well. And that's why when the Oakleys move on, it hurts. Right? Lord, help us. To love one another greatly for the glory of God because that's what family does. (laughs) So Paul wanted to come and see these Thessalonian Christians face to face more than once, but he couldn't. Why not? Here's why. He says, because Satan hindered them. How? It doesn't say how, but here Paul makes it very clear that Satan can indeed hinder legitimate Christian work and workers. I mean, he's done it effectively in the past, and he undoubtedly continues to do it successfully even today. So, who exactly is Satan? The word Satan means adversary, and that's exactly who he is. He's the constant enemy of God and man. He's also called the devil, which means slanderer, backbiter, and false accuser, which is what he's constantly doing as he slanders God to man and man to God. But, okay, who is he exactly? Well, he's a fallen angel. See, God created myriads and myriads of angels, and Satan was one of those angels. But then Satan sinned against God, and he then led a rebellion of other angels, a third of them, who then became demons. His fall from heaven is symbolically described in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, and then in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 18. And while these two passages are referring specifically to the kings of Babylon and Tyre, most believe that they also reference the spiritual power behind those kings, namely Satan. Ezekiel 28 describes Satan as an exceedingly beautiful angel. In fact, Satan was likely the highest of all angels, but he wasn't content in his position. Look what Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 says. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. See what happened? Satan fell because of pride. He desired to be God, not to be a servant of God. So he got the big head. He turned against God. He led a rebellion of a third of the angels who are now demons, fallen angels. And and he's now God and God's people's enemy and our adversary. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Adversary means enemy. Someone who actively and continuously is hostile towards another person. The devil to us. And look, he walks about like a roaring lion, looking, looking, and seeking, and seeking for someone else to devour. See, the devil wants to devour you, and he will do whatever he can to do that. And he has you, specifically the believer, the Christian, in his sights. He is seeking you out. He's looking for people to pick off from the herd. He is constantly on a search and destroy mission, and he's deadly serious in what he does. He's always busy. He takes no time off. He's always looking for an opening, seeking, seeking, seeking. This tells us that the devil stalks every Christian. He's now on the loose. He's on the prowl looking to trap you, looking for opportunities to undermine our Christian walk. Note that he's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. However, he has a massive infrastructure of demons who do his bidding and who are very, very good at what they do. So the devil says, I'm looking for the spiritually naive. I'm patrolling the earth for simple souls who don't think I'm real. I'm looking for those who think this is a game. I'm looking for those who are playing with their sin. I'm looking for those who are harboring anger or any old sin for that matter. I'm looking for those who don't have on their spiritual armor so that I can then pounce on them and devour them. So he's moving around, wanting to take someone and literally rip that person to shreds, looking for someone to devour, it says. Now please note that Satan's goal isn't to devour unbelievers because he already has unbelievers. His goal is to devour us Christians. And even though he can't take away our salvation, so glad about that, he can indeed mess with our life and mess with our testimony and mess with our joy and mess with our witness. And he can certainly bring devastation and, and damage to us if we're not on guard. One said, Jesus came seeking sinners. The devil seeks saints. He looks for Christians with their guard down. He couldn't keep Christians from becoming Christians, so now he wants to make them ineffective Christians. And he will do everything in his diabolical power to render them ineffective. He wants an impotent Christian and an impotent church. That's absolutely right. Ephesians 6.11 says that the devil is wily, right? He's a schemer which describes deliberate planning and a systematic approach to bringing you, the Christian, down to devouring you, to destroying your witness and your life. David Jeremiah says this about Satan's schemes. He says this, If you could sneak into Satan's office, wherever that might be, and take a peek into his file, you might be surprised to find a file folder with your name on it. Oh yes, he keeps a file on you, and inside that file are all the strategies that he's tried on you, the ones that have worked and the ones that have failed. Well, he doesn't waste his time with the ones that don't work on you anymore. Instead, he uses variations on the strategies that have caused you to stumble in the past. As long as they keep working, he keeps on using them. See? He's wily. He's very wily. Satan is a very powerful enemy, and he is our enemy. But please note this. Note that Satan is indeed a defeated foe. 
Come on. (laughs) And his doom is sure. Satan is acting on a leash, God's leash. And Satan is no match for the Lord God Almighty. And as we saw in Ephesians, we in Christ can take a strong stand against Satan. And we can fight him well when we fight him with the right weapons, with the spiritual weapons at our disposal as Christians. Like what? Let's just be reminded of those spiritual weapons. Like this. Truth which is speaking of a commitment to the truth of God. So you know the truth, you believe the truth, you love the truth found in the Word of God, so you're truly saved, and now you're ready to fight for the truth. That's the idea here. This speaks of sincerity, dedication, readiness, conviction, commitment, and preparedness. You're all in, see? You're all in. You're not indifferent about this faith of yours. You're, you're not divided. You're not half-hearted. No, you're all in because you know and believe the truth and that then compels us ever forward. Next is righteousness. I believe this speaks of both aspects of righteousness, the imputed righteousness or the credited righteousness of Christ that we receive at salvation and then the necessity for us to live the righteous and God-pleasing life more and more and more. So we put on the breastplate of the imputed righteousness of Christ as our defense against Satan's many accusations, knowing that Christ died for us, knowing that Christ forgives us of all our sin, knowing that Christ loves us, even as we stumble and bumble along. And then, along with that, we're intent on pursuing Christ more and more and more because we love Him. So, we're fighting sin, we're repenting much when we fall, we're seeking to obey and to please God, not perfectly, because we're not perfect, but passionately. And that pursuit is like a spiritual breastplate that protects us from the onslaught of the wicked one. Next is peace, God's peace. Here's the thought. If God be for us, who can be against us? See? When Satan and life try to knock you down and cause you to flee instead of stand strong, when worries and fears surround you, when you fall and when you fail and when you mess up big time and, and you begin to waver, that's when you remember God, God's peace. Remember the good news of Christ and what He did on the cross for all who believe for you and what that means for you. Remember God's great and unfathomable love for you because when you do that, It'll raise you up above all those worries and above all those fears and give you perspective that will allow you to continue fighting and standing. (sighs) Because I have Christ and because I have surrendered to Christ in repentant faith and because I've been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, I am now at eternal peace with God and I have the peace of God in my life and that then enables me to keep going and to endure, and to continue fighting. See, Next is faith, which speaks of your actively trusting God by living out your faith with faithful living. So we're already saved by faith, and now we're called to live out our faith day by day by day, trusting Him, taking Him at His word, and living faithfully for the glory of God. Faith says this, I trust the Lord. I'm not going to believe lies. I I trust the Lord. I'm not going to be shaken by what's going on around me. I, I trust the Lord. And as Satan hurls his fiery arrows at us, faith is a shield against those arrows of doubt and trials and fears and worries and temptations. I trust the Lord through it all. 
I believe what God has told me. I know that He loves me, even though it doesn't look like it at this moment. I know He will never leave me nor forsake me. I know that He will keep all His promises. I trust Him. That is a shield that allows us to stand in this great battle that we are in. You entrusted your soul into His care, so you you entrust your daily life to Him as well. See, He has you. He loves you. Even when bad things happen to you. And He can indeed be trusted. Next is salvation, which isn't talking about our past salvation that happened when we were saved and when we first believed, as good as that is. But instead, this is talking about our future salvation. About the full culmination of our salvation as believers that we will soon experience in eternal glory. And it's this hope in Christ that steadies the soul. It it steadies us in our walk of faith. And even though our life will still have stresses and tragedies and hardships and trials and pains. Look, for the believer whose hope is in the Lord and in what lies ahead, he won't be overcome because our hope carries us through all of that. See, we won't drift if we cling to Christ our hope. The future is very, very bright for all of us in Christ. And that truth carries us through the many hardships that we face in this fading life. Next is the Word of God. This is our weapon in which we can assault the wicked enemy of our souls. So I say use it. Use the weapon. Use it a lot. It's powerful. It's effective. It's, it's living and it's active. And it, it grows us up and it revives our soul. And it teaches us and it encourages us and it corrects us. And it makes us more godly. And Satan hates it. So, so use it against him. How? Well, read it. Know it, study it, ingest it, memorize it, live it out. Make it your one rule for life. Cherish it, prize it, treasure it, and go to war. And then finally, prayer. Prayer is a mighty weapon against the enemy of our souls. And we're called to be always praying. And the more prayer, the better. God sovereignly works through His people's prayers. And heartfelt, fervent prayer is something that Satan hates. So, pray a lot. Pray more. And look... When you take up all these spiritual weapons, that's how you can take your strong stand against your terrible enemy and overcome him more and more and more and more. So stand stand with these spiritual weapons. So, all that to say, how then did Satan hinder Paul from coming to Thessalonica? Again, it doesn't say. But Satan does much of his best work by raising up and influencing his ungodly people to battle against the people of God. And that's probably what hindered Paul from coming to Thessalonica. That's my guess. (laughs) That ungodly men, under the devil's wicked influence, which is something that we see happening all around us even today, whether those God-haters realize that truth or not, they, they opposed Paul and the work of Paul, and just as they were used many times to drive Paul out of cities here, they were probably used to keep Paul from coming back to Thessalonica, perhaps. Either way, that didn't really stop Paul. No, he just went on to the next city and preached the gospel there, or else he simply remained in Corinth and ministered there until he's able to finally come to Thessalonica. What do you do when Satan hinders you? What do you do? Well, here's what you do. You glorify God where he has you, or else you move on, and you move to the next place, and you glorify God in the next place. See, he hinders, he hinders, 
But if we remain faithful, God will use that, even that, for His glory. Remember the persecution in Acts chapter 8? Severe persecution against Christians broke out in Jerusalem, and what happened? The Christians then scattered, and look, they took Christ with them everywhere that they were scattered, and so it was persecution that caused the church to go out to the ends of the world and and see many lost souls saved for the glory of God. So Satan's working, yeah, and he's hindering, yeah. But God uses that for His glory when we remain faithful to love and to obey Him. The key is to be faithful. Just be faithful. To always have on your spiritual armor, to, to stay awake, to stay alert, to not, not slip back, and to keep our eyes on Christ. Spurgeon noted this. Satan will attack you sometimes by force and sometimes by fraud. By might or by slight, he will seek to overcome you, and no unarmed man can stand against him. Never go out with all your armor on, without all your armor on, for you can never tell where you may meet the devil. He's not omnipresent, but nobody can tell where he is not. He and his troops of devils appear to be found everywhere on this earth. That's right. And the devil cheats. He's a cheater. He doesn't fight fair. He's wretched. And he's a despicable enemy. But God is greater. Amen? God is greater. And guess what? He lives in us as Christians. Look what Paul says next. Third, Our hope is you in the presence of Christ that is coming. Verse 19. What is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Now here Paul continues to express his love and his heart for the Thessalonian believers. Hope is defined as a desire for some future good with the expectation of obtaining it. See, hope is confident expectancy, the looking forward to something with sure confidence that it's going to be fulfilled. Joy describes an attitude that's cheerful and glad. Biblical joy is a gift of God, a fruit of His Spirit, and it's independent of circumstances. The true joy and heartfelt, passionate gladness that comes from the Lord, we have that. Crown refers to the wreath of or garland that was awarded to the victors of the sporting events of the day. The crown was the only prize that ancient Olympic athletes received. And therefore, the crown was cherished as a great treasure. And those who had it greatly rejoiced in it. So look what Paul says. What then is Paul's joy, his hope, and his crown of rejoicing? What? Them. Them. The Thessalonian believers. Where? Look what he says. It's you... In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. So, look, instead of Paul looking back and being all sad, Paul looks ahead and rejoices. He looked ahead by faith and he saw, listen to this, he looked ahead by faith and he saw his friends in the presence of Christ in eternal glory. How good is that? One said, Paul lived in the future tense as well in the pre- as the present. His actions were governed by what God would do in the future. And that's right. See, Paul knew that the best for us in Christ is yet to come. And he knew that Jesus would return and he would reward him for his faithful ministry. And not only that, he knew that the Christians in Thessalonica would bring glory to God and they would also bring joy to Paul's heart. Two thoughts here. First, Jesus is coming back. 
Oh, what a wonderful day that will be. Anyone? Anybody excited about that day? Because we have every reason in Christ to be excited about that day. Paul will talk about that more later on in 1 Thessalonians. But Jesus is indeed coming back for us, and it will be worth it all when we finally get to see Jesus face to face. I can't wait. Hey, we are closer now than we've ever been. And things seem to be ramping up, and these are indeed exciting times to be living in. You say, John, tell us more. No, I'm not. Not yet. You have to wait until we get to chapters 4 and 5. But we'll get there. But good news, his return is the next thing in line to happen, and it's coming, and it's certain, and it's sure. And we should be excited, and we should be ready for that great day whenever it may be. See, every generation is called to live in light of the return of Christ. And again, we're closer now than we've ever been, and uh, I think things are ramping up. Chapter 4 and 5, just wait. <laughs> Alexander McLaren said that the early church was not watching for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. They lived in light of that, how much more us today. So, with Christ, joy and great excitement for that coming day. I can't wait. But without Christ, doom and wrath, it's going to be a very, very bad day. That's why you need Christ. Because Christ saves And he forgives wretched sinners of all their sin that keeps them out of heaven. He forgives us of that and he takes us to glory by grace through faith in Christ because of who he is and because of what he did. So for us in Christ, it's going to be a great day. And I pray that we're all in Christ here today. Second, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded accordingly, which should motivate us to be faithful in spite of difficulties. I believe Paul alludes to this great truth here when he says that they are his crown. Look what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.9. Therefore, whether present or absent, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to God. Why? Because we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. What does that mean? It means that as Christians, we will answer to God for how we live and we will then be rewarded accordingly. Now, please understand that judgment for a Christian and judgment for a non-Christian are radically different. See, the judgment for the non-Christian, which is called the great white throne judgment, as described in Revelation chapter 20, is that judgment where non-believers will stand before God, where the books of their lives will be opened up, and where they will then be held accountable for their sin and for their rejection of Christ, their Savior, which will result in eternal condemnation and judgment. That's not the judgment that Paul is talking about here. Instead, here he's talking about a judgment of evaluation for the Christian for how he or she lived out their faith. It's a judgment for the works of the Christian, the fruit of the Christian. Look, the word judgment seat is a Greek word, bima, which is where a Roman magistrate sat to act as a judge. A person who stood before this bima seat would have his or her deeds examined for the purpose of either indicting them or for rewarding them. In the same manner, when Christ returns, we as Christians will all stand before God and we will give an accounting for how we lived out our faith. Now again, this isn't a judgment for sin or condemnation since there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. But rather, 
This Bemis judgment is a judgment of evaluation and of eternal reward. Every Christian will appear before this judgment seat. We will all give an accounting before God, and each Christian will discover the real verdict of his life, ministry, service, and motives. And it's there that your life as a Christian, your fruitfulness as a Christian, your stewardship as a Christian, your works as a Christian will be accounted for before God, evaluated, and rewarded. Paul talks about this again in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. In that passage, Paul's speaking to Christians, and he's talking about what's going to happen on the day that we will stand before God at this Bema seat judgment of assessment. Verse 12 says this. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now here, Paul makes it clear that as Christians, what we have done and our motive for doing it will be tested by fire, and the purifying fire of God will burn up everything that's not of Him, and then we will be rewarded for what remains. See, here... You can waste your life away on wood, hay, and straw. You can waste your life away on those things that have no value in eternity, empty works, trivial things that don't honor or glorify God, things that will burn up and disappear, worldly things that don't glorify God. You can waste your life on on those things. You can. Or you can live for gold, silver, and precious stones, which represents the things that have true eternal value. What you do for God and, and for the glory of God, like what? Anything that is a result of Christ in you, anything that you do that honors and glorifies God, that includes the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all of those things. And it also includes tangible things like serving Him and serving His church, like giving to Him and to His people, sharing your faith, saying no to sin, showing Christ to others, to your family, your kids, your, your spouse, growing in Christ, obeying Christ from the heart, Christian fellowship and encouragement, reading his word so you can then put it into practice prayer living for his glory honor and pleasure ministry to others like paul here in thessalonica on and on and on all those eternal and god-pleasing things will be rewarded by him in the future what an incredible thought that is fact how you live out your faith matters greatly how you live out your faith matters greatly Yes, we are saved by faith alone, not by any works. True. But now that we are saved, good and godly works matter greatly, and they have eternal value, and they will be rewarded accordingly. What's the reward? Hey, heaven's good enough for me. Anybody else? Okay, I hope so. That is free, and that is unearned. But look, rewards come in addition to eternal glory. So what is it? Well, my thought is very simple. I've told you this before. The Christian's greatest reward is knowing and feeling the pleasure and smile of God. That's true. So I picture it like this. Going and finally standing before God as a Christian, as a believer, before this beam of seat judgment and saying one of two things. Here, Lord, here's my basket of fruit. 
I did it for you because I love you. Or this, here, Lord, I did it for you. I did it all for you because I love you. Hey, bring in the truckloads. What do you want? Truckloads of fruit are brought in and laid down before the Lord as a way to honor Him and show my intense love for Him. And He smiles. Come on, that's the ultimate reward. Not a little basket, but truckloads. Some say that the Christian reward is jewels in a crown that we get to wear when we get to heaven. (laughs) My crown is bigger than your crown. I have more jewels than you. I'm pretty awesome. That's certainly not how Paul understood it. Look what Paul says. You are our hope, joy, and crown of rejoicing. So look, you're not going to get a crown for your glorified head. Your crown, at least in part, is going to be the presence of the people that you impacted for the glory of God. The people whose lives were influenced by your words, your life, your prayers, and, and so on. So your, your eternal reward isn't something that you get to stick on your head. It's an impact, the impact of your life on the lives of others, and you get to see that. Now, I don't believe that's all that makes up the eternal reward, but it's clearly a part of that. Lives touched by Him by you, for Him. God glorified through you. The positive result of Christ in you, shown to others. What you do for the honor and glory of God. And here, Paul's joy, hope, and glory, and boast is you. The Thessalonians in the presence of the Lord. That's it. Where? Someday in the presence of the Lord, he would see the people, think about this, whose lives he had touched. Isn't that cool? They're all part of that Fruit, that gold, silver, and precious stones. What about you? I say, impact lives for the glory of God. I say, bear real lasting fruit for the glory of God. That matters. I say, fight sin every day with fervor for the glory of God. I say, pray much and gobble up God's word for the glory of God. I say, give and serve and sacrifice and work hard for the glory of God. That has eternal value. That, that reaps eternal reward. Only one life will soon be passed. Say it with me because I say it all the time. Only what's done for Christ will last. Fourth, Paul reiterates this truth when he says, you are our glory and joy. And that is right now. That's really interesting. See, this here is in the present tense. So this tells us that the believers in Thessalonica were a source of glory and joy to Paul right now. So not only is Paul looking forward to what lay ahead for him and for them, but they're now a source of great glory and, and joy, great joy and great blessing to Paul. Why would Paul say that? Well, why they're a source of great glory and great joy? Because they're seeking to glorify God in their lives, battling sin and pursuing holiness and faithfully obeying based on their love for Christ. And, and that makes any pastor, that makes any shepherd feel joyful and feel extremely blessed. See, Paul loved them. He was a spiritual father to them. He he felt responsible for them. He was their loving under-shepherd. And because of that, he felt an ever-present responsibility not only to see more souls saved, but to also present those saved complete and fully matured in Christ. And, And when that's happening, more and more and more, great joy. As Paul wrote in Colossians 1.28, And we proclaim him, 
admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. You see, So he not only wants to see more souls saved, but he wants to see those saved souls growing and maturing more and more and more, drawing nearer, ever nearer to Christ. And that's what he labored and agonized for. And when that's happening in a church that you're called to lead, when that's happening in a church that you're called to shepherd, great joy. John, John wrote in 3 John 3, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That's, that's his joy. Look, pastoring a church isn't just a job. Right? I mean, everything that I do, really, pretty much everything I do is tied up in the church. And when people are coming to Christ and saving faith, I'm very happy. When people are growing in the Lord, I'm very happy. When sin is being battled against and is being overcome a little bit more at a time, I'm very happy. When husbands are rising up and leading and loving their wives better than they were before, I'm, I'm happy. When wives are submitting and respecting their husbands in a God-honoring biblical way, I'm happy. When parents are turning from their old worldly ways of raising their children to raising them according to the Word of God more and more, I'm happy. And even though my personal life is often hard as I deal with my own hardships and worries and fears and sins and so on. Look, when the church, this church is walking in truth more and more and more, I'm very happy. And I fully understand how Paul felt. However, when that isn't happening, I'm very sad. Yeah, because any good shepherd loves his sheep, right? Any good pastor loves his people. Please don't make me or any of our shepherds here sad. When husbands and wives in this church are fighting and bickering and being selfish and harboring sin and harboring unforgiveness, it's depressing. When young people in this church are loving the ways of the world more than the things that please and glorify God, it's, it's heartbreaking. When some in this church are playing instead of praying, when they're flippant with God's Word and not inhaling it, it it's, it's heart-wrenching. When people are playing church, living one way here and another way in the world, when they're hiding secret sins, when they're indulging in their fleshly lusts instead of fighting bitterly against those lusts for the glory of God, it's heartbreaking. And let me just say, there's a lot of joy and a lot of heartbreak to go around. Please, please, I'm begging you, don't make me sad. It's Pastor Appreciation Month. Make me happy, better yet, make God happy. You are our glory and joy. Now look, when the Christians at Thessalonica read this letter, it had to have encouraged them tremendously. They're going through intense persecution and great suffering, and perhaps some of them were tempted to give in, and some of them were tempted to give up. Here's the encouragement. Don't give up. Never, ever give up. No, keep pursuing 
Lay hold of the spiritual resources that you have in Christ. You have the word of God at your fingertips, the people of God around you, and the glory of God before you. Never give up, never slow down, never quit. Always keep fighting and battling for the glory of God. And then one day, glory forever. So, please, fight sin Make it your aim to please God. Don't be content with the spiritual status quo. Look ahead and pursue and look up because soon we'll all be with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to look up. Help us to bring great joy to You, Lord, as Your children. May we be pursuing you. May we see that you're all that really matters and you give us real peace and hope and joy and grace and mercy and forgiveness and love in this life. And you are the thing that we all desperately, desperately need. So I pray that more would come to see that reality and for those of us who know it, may we cling to you ever tighter. In Jesus' name, amen.